0: Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is Brad Milotsky. Brad is a partner at Dwayne Morris, where he practices real estate law. Prior to joining Dwayne, Brad served as general counsel for Brandywine Realty Trust, where he was responsible for all legal operations of the company, including acquisition and divestitures, financing, joint ventures, litigation, oversight, and capital raising. Brad is active in the community, serving on the board of trustees for Bancroft and the Jewish Federation of Southern New Jersey. Brad completed his undergraduate degree at the University of Delaware and received his J.D. and MBA from Villanova. Brad, thanks for joining us. We're really excited.
1: Sure thing, man.
0: So you started your career as an attorney at a big law firm. Then you spent a couple decades as a general counsel for a large development company before going back to practice law. How did the culture of law firms change during your time away from the big firm environment?
1: So obviously no expert in culture. But with respect to kind of where I left, which was Pepper Hamilton, and where I ended up now, which is at Dwayne Marsh the last couple of years, things have changed in the sense that the practice of law has shifted from a small regional focus to more of a national footprint. Not that there's not room for small local people. There always will be. But how one goes about attracting and retaining clients is different. I think the culture at Dwayne fits me a bit, which is again a bit of luck, but on my part, they've been around for 125 years, and so I think that I can at least speak to Dwayne. It's hard to generalize it, but they're collegial. I mean, they tend to focus on how can we work together, which sounds a little bit trite, but it's not. The management is professional in the sense that they've had a CFO and a COO that are business people running the firm for quite some time, which is a little bit different than where some firms came from. And so the firm has no debt, and the firm constantly is thinking about how to get better, and how to attract talent and retain talent. And they care. I mean, it sounds, again, a little bit silly, but they do care. They care about their employees. They care about the associates and the partners, and they're striving to do better. And so that's you know what one would look for. And they're also kind of looking outward, I think. Under Matt Taylor, who's our current chairman, the firm embarked on a strategic plan, which we hadn't done before. And you sort of say, well, in business, a little crazy, but in big law, that's kind of a relatively new thing and phenomenon. And so how does the client look at the firm? And when the client comes to the firm, what are they looking for? And if we're providing services to any number of industry segments, how do we attract talent into the firm to service that? And two, how do we project outwards to those industry segments in order to attract clients and retain them. And so I think the firm's done a really nice job of crossing what's traditional practice groups and interspersing them into what we're calling our big I initiative, big industry industry, and focusing on where the firm is utilizing resources and serving clients in order to kind of aggregate those people in a place so that clients, when they look at the firm, can find those people easily, and also that we can project outwards into those industry segments. So a little bit different, more business planning, more collaborative. How do you work across not necessarily silos, but across practice groups and create true synergies? So, again, no rocket science there, but really blocking and tackling and making it happen.
0: How did your perspective as an attorney change by serving as general counsel for Brandywine Realty Trust? And how did that make you unique when you transaction back to a big law firm?
1: I never think of myself as unique, but more of a plotter, frankly. But I think that having worked at a public company for 18 plus years, the ability to cut to the chase and get to an answer. So, again, if the clients are interested in kind of the background and the underpinning of why one gets to answer, God bless. But at Brandywine, the business folks were very interested in you know what I thought, but they wanted kind of an answer. And then if they were interested in the explanation, they could come back. And so the ability to be rather pointed in one's answer rather than feel the need to explain every single nuance of a particular thing is a bit of a skill that I've acquired over time, and was taught over time. The other thing is, I think, having sat in a big firm for 18 years and having purchased legal services, I kind of know what frustrates folks that are procuring those services, whether it's a general counsel or whether it's a CEO or whether it's somebody else. And so the ability to, I guess, communicate effectively, the ability to estimate a bill, I think the industry doesn't do as well as it could or should do. We're one of the few institutions, law, that you go anywhere else and you say, I want to buy a car, I want to buy shoes, I need this. How much does it cost? And people give you a cost. Legal, it's, well, we're not sure. It depends. And it could be this or it could be that. We, as a firm, we as an organization institution, we've done these transactions enough where we should be able to estimate what the cost is. Subject to a couple of parameters, but here's what we think the work will be. And here's why. And if it moves off of that, communicate early, often, so that the business people that are using those services are aware of where things are at, and they can decide whether they want that done or not. Too often, I think the lawyers don't have that kind of communication, or it's like 60 days later based on billing, and people get frustrated. So I think the ability to having sat in that chair as the buyer of those services gives me a little bit of a different insight than many people who are just performing the service.
0: Now, with respect to Brandywine, is it refreshing not to be chasing quarterly results and to be able to see more of a long-term thing come to fruition?
1: Refreshing is kind of the wrong word. I mean, Brandywine is a super organization. The folks there I still communicate with, and my retirement is still in a lot of Brandywine stock. And so I firmly believe in what they're doing. I didn't feel personally the pressure of quarterly earnings, but Jerry and the management team are looking out at the horizon, planning five and 10 years out while being very cognizant of quarterly results. And so, yeah, it sets a different pace, which is focused one right in front of you, but also looking long term. I don't have that here. I have here where I'm working with 10, 20, 50 clients and their needs are what's important to them and to me. And so the ability to planfully assist them in whatever they're working on and making sure that all of their needs are tracked and addressed appropriately, that's the juggle. So it's not quarterly earnings. It's A multitude of different people that all expect not instantaneous gratification, they're realistic mostly, but they expect their job to be important to me, which it is, and that they get the results they're looking for. And so it's more managing that to the appropriate expectation versus a quarterly TikTok from Wall Street from some guys who are gals who are 26 years old going out and throwing axes at night and drinking cocktails.
0: (laughs) So big law is rigorous and it does require a strong work ethic. Was there a first job or an early experience that helped you prepare to serve your clients like you do?
1: Sure. I think that really comes from your parents as opposed to your job. But yeah, I mean, I was always taught that work hard and then I taught myself play hard. My dad tends not to play so much. You see it and you adopt it and that's a little bit different than people who are a little bit younger than us. I'm not saying right or wrong, it's just different. And so when we started mid-50s, which is crazy, you were expected to be at the firm at 8 o'clock and you were expected to stay there until nine, ten. 10. It wasn't like anybody had to say that, that. That was just kind of what occurred. You stayed until you got the work done and you made sure the people around you were appropriately serviced relative to what their needs were on the legal front. And so that was just kind of what it was. As time has gone by, people are interested in, for the right reasons, their spouses, their kids, their community, their volunteer efforts, and all that stuff is important. It's kind of work-life balance. But again, you got to be able to balance family, which is important and critical, with the needs of clients. Does that mean you're on email 24-7? I mean, for some of us, sure. For others, it's a little bit different. So how one personally balances that, it's kind of a personal decision, and things generationally are a little bit different that way. But I continue to struggle on do you look at email after 10 o'clock at night? Is it the first thing you look at when you get up in the morning? You know, all that kind of stuff. That was just sort of set early on. And it wasn't a surprise to me when I got to the firm back in the late 80s. That was the expectation. And you did it because you wanted to be successful. You did it because other folks around you were doing it and because it was the right thing to do. You wanted to make sure that your stuff was dealt with and how you could help people around you were they done? Could they use a hand? And that's how you learned.
0: So more recently, you've been regarded as an expert in opportunity zones. How did the opportunity zones get started and what are the benefits to investors? You knew this was common. <laughs> it's
1: one of the few areas, frankly, that has seen, and there's others, but that has seen really broad bipartisan support, which is surprising in this day and age when you hear nothing about that. But the original premise to the program was both Senator Scott and Senator Booker, an R and a D, both from very different walks of life, were collaborating over affordable housing. And so they were thinking about, well, the low-income housing tax credit program, been around for like 35 years, a federal program that allocates credits federally to states based on census data, demographics, how many people are in this each state, every year in order to allow each state to then create programs around incenting development of affordable housing. So LIHTC, low-income housing tax credit, it's been around for 35 years. It's responsible for, I don't know, 95 96% of the affordable housing that's been built in the United States over the last 35 years. So it's a very good program and it's very successful, but it's built not nearly enough affordable housing. So outside the program, not a lot of affordable housing gets built nationally. And so you've got a situation where a federal program is successful, but you know, not a drop in the bucket, but the bucket is a big bucket and getting bigger as we get the more population, more people need affordable housing, unfortunately. And so they were focused on how do we get capital, private capital, to incent that capital to invest in these low, moderate income areas in order to build affordable housing. That was kind of their goal. And they circled around the idea of enabling capital gains, so gains on the sale of real estate or gains on the sale of personal property, the stuff that's in your house. So furniture, fixtures, equipment, jewelry, gold bullion, if you got that stock. How do you incent that behavior when somebody sells it to take that gain and put it into a project, i.e. a business or real estate in a particular area? A low, moderate income area. And so they focused around that five, six years ago, and they came up with the Opportunity Zone program. And it had very good support in the House and the Senate, both D and R, in the sense that it enabled private capital to do some of the job of what the federal government had been doing before, an additive thing. And so they'd been working on that, and they were interested in reporting and job creation and kind of incubation of businesses. That, that's where they were focused. And so that was what they had worked on for quite some time. At the same time, a guy who you'll probably know, Sean Parker, Napster, your age group, the guy that intermediated music first, essentially changed the music industry by allowing for downloads illegally. Ultimately, the federal government raised their hand and said, hey, what are you doing? That's illegal. And he had billions of dollars, literally, and he lost billions of dollars, but he had made some friends along the way. And he invested, as you said, early on in Facebook. So he was one of the original investors in Facebook, and he's literally made billions of dollars on Facebook. So at the same time, Senator Scott and Senator Booker are working on their Opportunity Zone program. You'll likely remember a couple of years ago, Warren Buffett gathered a group of like 100 billionaires who agreed that when they died, 99.9% of their personal net worth would go to charities. And so they were at that event, and the people were being interviewed as to why you did it and why you were involved. And somebody happened to interview Sean Parker, and they said, why are you involved? And he said, well... I can afford it. And I want to give back. And I feel a little bit guilty about what we Facebook did in Seattle. He said, we're doing great stuff. The company's great. But because we have made money for our folks that work for the company, and because a lot of people work for the company, housing prices around Seattle have skyrocketed. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of people that can no longer afford housing in Seattle. And they have to drive like an hour, hour and a half to work like almost like San Francisco. As well. And so he's focused on Seattle. He says, look, if I could sell my Facebook stock and take the gain and put it into helping this housing problem, I would do that. But if I sold a billion dollars worth of Facebook stock, there'd be a 240 million with an M gain that's payable to the federal government. And I don't feel that the federal government would be able to use that appropriately, underline that. And so he says, I'd love to do that, but I'm not going to do that. I'll do it when I die. So you have two ideas, different coasts all of a sudden colliding, which are how do you incent private capital, capital gains in this instance, to help on a problem that's a bit intractable, which is homelessness and affordable housing? So how do you incent those dollars to go into tricky areas nationally in order to build more affordable housing? So Parker thinking about that, but doesn't want to sell his stock because of the game would go to the federal government, and he'd rather use that for housing. And you've got Tim Scott and Cory Booker working on the program. And so they meet, and it galvanizes around the Opportunity Zone program. A little bit of a long story there, but as the president, Trump, is working on their tax bill at the end of 2017, they need some votes. The president calls Senator Scott to the White House and says, hey, we understand you have this program. Explain it. So, Senator Scott explains the Opportunity Zone program. It's focused on affordable housing. It's focused on job creation in low, moderate income areas. President's team says, Hey, what if we modify your program? We like it, but what if we don't just limit it to affordable housing? What if we include everything else office, residential, retail, hotel, doesn't matter, any development in those areas? And so, again, Senator Scott is a, a moment to decide. Do I say no because that's not what the program was intended to be about? Or do I say yes, then at least some benefit will go to these communities and some benefit on affordable housing will hopefully spill off and get done? And so he opts to enable or to say, sure, we'd rather have something than nothing. And on Christmas Eve in 2017, six pages out of 2,970 pages of the new tax code are the opportunity zones. And so on January 1 of 18, the Opportunity Zones get passed as part of the Tax Act that gets passed that a variety of people like, a variety of people hate, but embedded in the Tax Act is six pages, which become the Opportunity Zone program.
0: So with it being six pages, how did you hear about it?
1: An old colleague of mine from back in the day when I was baby lawyer had called and said, Hey, I hear you're at Dwayne Morris. What are you up to? Let's go for lunch. And so we sat down over dim sum kind of, Right before Christmas, 17, we're doing dim sum and tea and stuff. And he says, hey, there's the tax act, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, I'm a real estate guy, as you know. The tax stuff is kind of less interesting to me. And he says, no, no, I think you're going to be interested in this. And so he explains what he views the opportunity zone to be. And I'm like half paying attention. I'm like, okay, sure, sure, sure. I don't even know the tax act is going to get passed at this point, It's like before it happened. So he explains it. I leave, we shake hands, and off I go into the good night or the good afternoon. And Christmas comes, Hanukkah comes, New Year's comes, tax act gets passed, and I'm a real estate guy. I'm not really thinking about the tax code. Three weeks later, something comes across my desk and like the morning blurbs that you get, like that I get, and there's an article. And I'm reading the article, and I'm like, you know, I've heard this somewhere. What is this? And then it dawned on me, it was my friend, Harold, who had said this thing coming, these opportunity zones. So I flipped him the article. I said, is this what you were talking about? And he says, yes, that's exactly what I was talking about. I said, can you re explain it to me? Walk me through. And why is this going to be relevant? So he walks me through. It's deferral until 2026. It's reduction. If you're in there for seven years or five years, 15% or 10%, you pay your tax. And then after you pay your tax, and I'm like, okay, well, who cares about that? You're just deferring. So you're paying later instead of paying now. And you're paying a little bit less, okay, that's interesting, because that's not the magic. The magic of the program is if you stay in the program for 10 years, and thereafter sell that which you built or bought before the end of, at that point, there was no end, but 2047 becomes what the day is, 100% of the appreciated value is federally capital gains tax-free. And I'm like, did you just say free? And he said, yes. And I said, well, there's no limit to that? No. And so I'm like, all fired up about it. I'm like, wow, now I get what you were saying. I understand. That's Fantastic. And so I go and I call up one of my friends and who's a tax person. I say, hey, you know, opportunities. Oh, my God, deferral, reduction, freedom. This is great. Oh, my God, this is going to be the next thing since sliced bread. And the guy goes, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. What the hell are you talking about? And so I, I explain it all over again. And he's like, that can't be right. That can't be right. I get off the phone. I look down at my desk, and there's paper all over the place. And there's this article, and it's sitting there. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll just put that to the side. And so I put it to the side because I'm not sure now. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is that okay? And as, you know, fate, luck would have it, I decide I'm going to go take a walk and get a sandwich. So it's like, you know, whatever, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, it's a chilly day. I'm walking down the street in Philadelphia. As luck would have it, I bump into an old friend on a street corner in Philadelphia who happened to – I have done work with for 20 years. And he's a tax guy, and he's structured a lot of deals, and he's a great guy, Joe Scalio at KPMG. I go, hey, Joe, how's it going? What's up? Are you ready for the holidays? La, la, la. Opportunity zones. Have you heard of them? And he goes, funny you should say that. I hadn't, but one of my young guys came to me and he was talking about opportunity zones and we looked at the code and I was like, holy smokes, this is interesting. And he said, I was on a national tax call with like a couple thousand of our professionals. And the guy who was leading the call said, is anybody familiar with opportunity zones? And Joe said, well, I was actually talking about it with one of my colleagues this morning. And the guy says, great, you're now in charge. Go figure out what the opportunity zones are, report back to us, and you're now kind of point guy for KPMG. And so I said to him, do you think it's real? And he said, yeah, I think it's real. And so both of us, you know, kind of we know people in different trade associations. He called down to NAIREE, which is the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust. I called down to the Real Estate Roundtable and said, do you guys have groups that are focusing on this? Yes and yes. Can we participate? Sure. It's a tax group. And I go, well, I'm not a tax guy, but I'm a transactional guy. And if you don't mind, I'd be interested in participating. And so those two groups started to convene around the program and what it meant and what it could mean. And they started to have conversations with the IRS and with Treasury over the period between kind of call it January, February, through when the regs were issued in October of 18. And then when an additional set got issued in April of 19. And so, again, a bit of dumb luck, a bit of listening, a bit of, wow, this could really have broad implications for real estate. But I got to tell you, for the first six, eight months in 2018, I would talk to anybody with a heartbeat. We held luncheons. We talked to anybody. I talked to somebody walking down the street. It didn't matter if I didn't know them. Opportunity zones, opportunities. zones, and no one was really interested, curious, believing of the fact that this was for real. And so it started to change probably around third quarter of 18, right before those regs came out, when the zones were in place, people were starting to pay attention. And ask the question, what is this and how does it apply? And how does it apply to me? That kind of question. And so it's taken off from there. I've been frothy, busy, different than what you read in the paper. Our practice has been very, very busy around structuring both for owner operators, what that could look like with their own money, what that could look like if they brought in third party capital. And then we've also represented a bunch of investors investing their own capital gains into these transactions. So it's been fun and fascinating.
0: So you were in on this before the tracks got designated?
1: Yes. We were looking at it. We didn't know where the tracks were going to be, but we were having the conversation. Yeah, those tracks got designated. So the act gets passed in January. Treasury takes HUD census data. Remember back to Tim Scott, Cory Booker. Mm-hmm. They take HUD census data based on tech low-income housing tax credits, so these areas are all in low-moderate-income areas. They take the census data. census had not been done since 2010. So that census isn't bad. It's just a little stale. So if you close your eyes and think back, pick a neighborhood that's a little tricky where you live, think back 10 years ago, it was very different than it is today in many cases. And so those maps went out from the federal government like in January with an edict to the governors of all 50 states you have until the end of March. Here's your map, pick 25%, for all intents and purposes, of the zones you have. We don't care whether they're urban, rural, near transit, near road, it's up to you, states. So the governors of all these states had three months to look at those maps and decide if they had 1,000 zones, they could pick 250. If they had 100 zones, you could pick 25, so 25%, give or take. And so those governors did whatever they were supposed to do, I guess, and they talked to their economic advisors, they talked to voters, whatever, And at the end of three months, they sent back those zones. And so, yeah, we were talking to Treasury and IRS during the period within which the people, the governors, were picking those zones in various states. That happened end of March, end of April at 18. Those maps came back from each of the states and the federal government, like it said, said, okay, we're not changing these. You picked it. It's on you. We're good. We gave you the maps. You followed the maps. It's all good. And those became the zones that started to get published. Then people started to get excited about, oh, my God, my property's in the zone, or I like that area, or, oh, my God, that's like you know an up-and-coming area. Let me invest there. And so that kind of happened. The zones came out at the end of March, April, and people started to think about it in May, June, and people started to figure out, well, how can I utilize this appropriately, and do I have capital gains, and how do I create capital gains, and all that kind of stuff.
0: Why is the 1231 deadline so important to OZ investors? And what happens if you don't get it in a fund prior to 1231?
1: Okay, so let's start with the common misperception. The common misperception is that the program ends after twelve thirty one nineteen, so in like 20 days from now. The answer to that is that's not true. The program continues through 2047, 4-7. So at the end of this year, the sky does not fall. Armageddon does not happen. The sun will rise. What happens at the end of this year and what all the buzz is about is those first two benefits that I quickly ran through before. So the three big benefits in OZ land are you get to defer payment of capital gains. So you pay later, not now. So if you sold stock, again, like Amazon, and you made a bunch of money, so let's assume you had a million dollars in gain. Well, typically, the federal government will take about 24% rounding here of that gain to them. So, if you made a million dollars on the sale, 240 grand, 24% of the million would go to the federal government. And you would pay that with part of your tax return. That's part of what you owe. So, the program allows you to defer payment. So, you pay later instead of now. You pay at the end of 2026. That was kind of the first piece. Second piece was the longer you're in the program, the less you pay. If you're in the program seven years, you get to reduce the amount subject to tax by 15%. If you're in for five years, you get to reduce by 10%. So seven years, 15%, five years, 10%. The amount subject to tax. So in our example, we had a million dollars of gain. If you were in for seven years, you get to reduce that million by 15%, or 15% times a million would be 150 grand. So you take 150 grand off of a million, that equals 850 and you would pay 24% on the 850 at the end of 2026. Change the numbers if you were in for five years, 10%. So 10% on a million would be 100 grand, take 100 grand off of a million, that's 900 grand subject to tax at the end of 2026. So defer, pay later, not now, end of 2026. Reduce seven years, 15%, five years, 10%. But you pay at the end of 2026. Okay, so to your question, The way you count the five years and the seven years is a little bit odd. It's backwards off of 2026. So if you count backwards five years or more off of 2026, that puts you in 2020 or 2021, meaning you or I would need, or anybody else would need to invest capital gains into a fund, into real estate, or a business in a zone in 2020 or 2021 in order to get the 10% reduction. If you count seven years backwards off of 2026, where does that get you? 19. That would be the last day of 19. So, any investment in 2019 is eligible for the 15% reduction. So, if you get capital gains into a fund by 1231, 2019 this year, you are eligible on those funds for that 15% reduction. That's the 150 off the million in our example. If you miss that day, and you bleed over till January of 2020, the program doesn't end. sky doesn't fall. You merely get a 10% reduction if you make that investment in 2020 or 2021. So again, there's a lot of activity now around, do I have capital gains? If I have capital gains, is it worth me putting those dollars into a fund in order to get the benefit of that 15% reduction? That's kind of what the million-dollar question is at the moment, or whatever the value is. So people are moving quickly to take advantage of the 15% versus 10. Between me and you and the lamppost, the delta between 15% and 10% on a million dollars. So if you have a million dollars in gain and you miss that day, the cost is $12,000. Meaning the savings on a million at 10% versus the savings on a million at 15%, the spread is $12,000. Again, I don't want to belittle $12,000. That's a lot of money, in particular, if you're using it for charitable purposes. But if you happen to miss by a day, you're still eligible, and it's only $12,000. So again, you do the increments of $100 million, then you're talking 120 dollars more interesting. So again, people are focused on the end of this year in order to get their dollars into a fund in order to get the 15%. And we're happy to help them do that. It's not the end of the world if they miss 1231, so long as they're still within their 180-day window of investing after a game.
0: It seems like Opportunity Zones are getting a lot of traction with institutional investors looking to deploy capital in a large project. Do you see a path towards the OZ legislation helping neighborhoods with smaller dollar investment amount on a more micro level?
1: I'll change what you said a little bit. I think there's some institutional money that's paying attention, but not the large, huge swaths of money that people are anticipating at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, because it's still a little bit early, believe it or not. And so the federal government had estimated that there were $6 trillion, with a T dollars of unrealized capital in the marketplace that could, if they sold, create capital gain and invest in these programs. That's a huge sum of money and would be a massive driver. But to your question, I don't think so far there's been a massive movement of institutional money into the program. On the other hand, I do think that the deals that have gotten done, at least, again, this is personal, so the deals that we've been working on, so I'm going to project this into the marketplace, so it may or may not be true, but the deals that we're seeing get done are kind of single asset transactions, smaller deals, call it $10 million to fifty million to $100 million. Those deals where an owner or developer was looking at a project and or thinking about a project, and they have capital gains, they are deploying some of those dollars into those projects in order to go into some areas and build stuff, buy stuff. The business end of things, creating new businesses is still new because those rules came out in April and people are still digesting, even though it's December. Right. But people are now starting to think about how do I create a business? And so to your question. My view is that a lot of smaller deals, good-sized deals have gone on. It's just there's no reporting of those deals. And so unless you're in the marketplace like we are, you don't hear about them. And so I tend to speak a lot. I tend to write a bunch and we're doing transactions. So we've closed like 29 of these deals already, OZ deals, and we're working on another 38 of them as we speak. And I'm having conversations like every day with interested people just looking to learn about this stuff. And so it's very busy at the local level, as opposed to somebody doing a $500 million deal. And so I think that the ability to collaborate with neighbors, the neighborhood that's going to be impacted by the development, exists. I think the ability to get their viewpoint, understand what they would like to have built, Work with mayor, work with town council, and depending on where you're at, what the relevant government folk are, and collaborate to get good stuff done exists. I think it's way, way too early to throw up the flag and say this is a rich guy's program getting richer, and it's all of the president's cronies. That's possible, and some of them will benefit for sure, but that's not the full story. And so the full story is going to take a little bit longer because the yields on those neighborhood transformational deals social impact investing, are much less than the yields on a multifamily luxury project. And so it takes a little bit longer to put those transactions together. But I'm one guy. I'm very much aware of, and we're working on about six to seven different charitable 501c3-type organizations. How do they utilize the program to raise money for their organization in order to deploy into affordable and or workforce housing, and do things like after-school programming, dress for success, interview skills, pregnant teens at risk programming, food, and medical in areas that are tricky. And so those deals are happening. It's just going to take them longer to get to the goal line than somebody building a high-end multifamily project that the yields are like a 9-10 day one. So all I'm saying is that I think there are transactions going on. I think reporting would be helpful. The regs and the rules don't require reporting. There's a couple of bills floating around Congress to mandate reporting. That was part of Senator Scott and Senator Booker's original idea was you would report on the progress throughout the 10-year period, and then we'd be able to look back and see what effect development job growth had on these neighborhoods, on water, energy, emissions, jobs, wages, things of that sort. But unless you require that, how do you aggregate all that data? So, again, I talk to people all the time, so I'm aware, but I wouldn't anticipate others doing that. And so, how do you aggregate that information into a place in order to understand what's really going on? And until you have that reporting, it's difficult to do that. So, I think there's a group called Novogratic that does a fabulous job of putting out that information and putting their feelers out into various marketplaces to find out what's going on. They've got a great website where they're tracking fund deployment. F-U-N-D. Uh, they may be tracking fund, F-U-N as well, but Bund for this purpose. And so they're tracking a number of funds that are raising money and how much money has been raised and deployed into the various marketplaces. And so again, there are services that are trying to do that, but making it kind of mandatory will force the delivery of that type of information.
0: You kind of touched on this, but my follow-up is, do you think the OZs benefit both the investors and the residents of the zone equally or the scales tip to benefit the investors?
1: I think it can be both. But let's start with the premise that these deals need to make sense on their own. I and mean, they don't take a crappy deal and make it good. They take a good deal and make it very good. So the deal needs to stand on its own without, OUT, the tax benefits. Once you have a good deal and you put the tax benefits on, it makes the deal sizzle. And so it should be a good deal for the investor where they won't invest their money. That's kind of starting point. Now, it can be a good deal for the community and for the neighborhood if their viewpoint is taken into consideration. If, on the other hand, a developer just goes in and uses buy-right zoning and builds something that the community may not want, that may be less helpful. To the community. So again, creating kind of these collaborative points of what is it that you would like? What is it that our zoning permits? And here's like an RFP for that for a particular area that has opportunity zones. That's what I've been counseling the various and sundry towns and municipalities and counties that we've been chit-chatting with over the last year. Create an easy access point for developers, but tell them what it is that you want built based on not your own view, But the view of your constituents, the people that live in the neighborhoods. So talk to them, have roundtables with them, find out what they want. I think you'll be surprised that in some areas they don't want affordable housing, which is surprising because those are areas that we're talking about neighborhoods that are in need of that. But the residents may not want that. So you got to really take into account their views when formulating your plan.
0: So you briefly touched on this as well. What flaws do you see in the program, and how would you like them remedied?
1: Flaws, I'd go with, look, the reporting, I think, needs to be there because it will allow for, not necessarily a level playing field, but it will allow for at least folks on both sides of the aisle to say success or not success based on a common set of facts, which in this day and age is not really there. And so reporting, important. Uh, That's not required. Community engagement, as we were just talking about, important. So far, if you're doing buy right building, you don't need to do that. And so I'm not saying mandate community engagement, but I'm saying that's important from the developer side so that afterwards the community is supportive. I think that there's still some confusion around land, when one buys land versus when one buys land and building. The building value is what you need to substantially improve. It's kind of one of these rules. Right, the and you need to double the value then that, right? that in building. Well, when you buy land, there is no building. So what's the rule? And you know that rule is, as the IRS has said, you need to make not an insubstantial investment. What the hell does that mean? And so there is no clarity really around that, although Treasury and IRS have said, at least at some of these conferences I've been at, that really means 10 to 15% of the purchase price of the land. So we don't want people land banking, going and buying these big swaths of property, getting all these benefits. You have to actually do something with the land. You need to improve it Equal to not an insubstantial amount, which is being viewed as, but it would be nice if it was codified 10 to 15% of the land purchase price. But you also need to have qualitatively an active trader business on the land. So if you and I went and bought a million dollar piece of property and improved it 10 to 15%, that would be 100 grand to 150 grand. We put stormwater in, we paved it, we put lighting, we did security there. That would all be acceptable and appropriate. But if we just did that and did nothing on the land afterwards, that doesn't work. So you need to qualitatively have a trader business there. So if it was a parking lot and it was actively being used as a parking lot, that would be fine. If we put a Rita's there, that would be fine. But you and me sitting there with cardboard lemonade stand, that would not be okay. So clarity around that would be helpful. Some of the noise around, there are a bunch of large funds, like 289 of them that we're aware of groups that were trying to raise money, take in capital gains, and then deploy those capital gains into projects. So a bunch of people running around trying to do that, which again, God bless them. There's rules around that. And there's been some various and sundry stories about some of the people that were trying to raise hundreds of millions, let alone billions of dollars, and how they haven't been as successful as they thought they were going to be to date. Why is that? Well, you or I, or I'll project us on others, friends, are skeptical by nature and cautious. And so if you or I are going to buy a piece of property in Philadelphia or in Camden or in Pensauken or name the city, and we're going to put our own money into it and we're going to build something and we're looking to attract investors, that's one thing. Investors can look at us, decide whether we know what we're doing, decide what our track record is, and they know the property. They understand kind of what it is they're getting into, whether it's affordable housing, multifamily, retail, residential, hotel, they can understand the property class and understand what the risk is. People are even cautious about doing those deals. That's one thing. Folks that I know approached with the notion of, hey, we're raising a billion dollars. We're going to invest it in, fill in the blank, West Coast logistics property that we hope is going to yield a 12% yield and an IRR of 20%. Is there West Coast logistics property? Sure. Does it yield 12 to 20 percent? Yes. But if it's my money, how do I know what development they're going to invest in? How do I know what developer they're going to pick? And how do I know what the level of permits and approvals are? Because you really have 30 months to deploy that capital into substantially improving the property. And so if you don't get there, it's not like a do-over you'll lose your benefits. And so why would one put money into a blind pool fund that says, trust me, we'll find the property. And so people didn't. These large funds have been less successful than they thought they otherwise would be. There are some that are doing great, but many went out with large thoughts and have not really executed as well as they could or should because they were raising it in a way that Made people a little bit nervous that they were going to be able to execute. So, again, the bigger the fund, the harder it is to deploy the money. The two of us could deploy a million, 10 million, 20 million relatively easily within a 30 month period. Mm -hmm. You start getting into 100 million, 500 million, a billion. That's much harder to do. That's not one project, that's multiple projects. And you better have developers that know what they're doing. And there are plenty of developers that know what they're doing. But if they're not identified, how does one know what's going on? And so I think that that's been some of the issue also around the program, that people are sensing that negativity
0: there. And since this is a new, we'll say, thing, does that mean there'll be possible scams that look like OZ funds, and how can they be avoided and spotted?
1: Current administration, all about a variety of things, but all about less regulation, freedom of the marketplace. Okay, I get it. And so the program, unlike many other tax programs, is self-certifying, meaning the two of us could create a fund by forming a partnership, an LLC, and putting capital gains into it. Okay. Very easy and appropriate. In order for us to qualify, we download a one-page form from the IRS and we say, yes, we are a fund. Love and kisses us. And we send it in. And magically, you're a fund. There's a compliance requirement every six months that you need to file a different one-page form with the IRS that says, Yes, I have reviewed the rules, and yes, we are in compliance. Signed, love and kisses, LLC. That's December and June of each year once you've created the fund, and thereafter potentially the Qualified Opportunity Zone business or QOZB. So does that require an accountant to review it and audit it? No. Does it require a lawyer to look at it and help? No. So no lawyers, no accountants required. Is that a good idea? No, it's not. But the plan was very easy to do. Anybody could do it. You didn't need sophisticated systems, blah, blah, blah. And so do I think that self-certifying without an audit, without lawyers involved, can lead to abuse? Yes, I'm pragmatist at heart. And so do I think that everyone's out there evil and they're going to take advantage of widows? No, I don't think everyone's like that. But I do think there are some unscrupulous sum of people that will look to take advantage of the fact that it's self-certifying in order to raise money and potentially rip people off. So, yes, I think that's a possibility. Do I think that the New York Times will report on that? I do. Do I think it will give the program a black eye? I do. And so I hope that we're able to do some good before somebody does something bad but I do think that's a real possibility. How do you guard against that? It's a good question. I think it's like anything else in life. You have to be a little bit skeptical and ask questions. So how many times have you done this before? Who have you done it with? What are the fees involved in your deal? What's the load? Are you charging fees for entrance and exit and property management and leasing? What are those fees? And are you charging a development fee that's not market? And are you charging an asset management fee when we've already deployed the capital? So those types of questions and who the developer is, how many times have they built this product in this marketplace? What's their track record? Has anybody ever sued them? Things of that sort. So it's typical, what I would say, diligence to make sure that where your dollars are going is going to the right place rather than just trusting in order to get 15% versus 10
0: Considering that the legislation selected specific census track and there is only a finite supply of property, are you seeing prices jump in areas that have been designated as opportunity zones?
1: I have not seen that. But again, remember, I'm dealing in a variety of marketplaces. My sense is that land prices have got a little bit frothy, depending, not everywhere, but in particular marketplaces, sure, as people have realized that their property is in a zone. And if somebody deploys capital before the end of this year, they get the 15%. So the more educated the seller is, the more they're going to ask for it. There's also an exception to the rule of substantial improvement, which is a little bit beyond today, but original use. So if you and I built something in a zone and we did not have a CO, certificate of occupancy, and we didn't have anybody move in yet, we are able to take that product to the marketplace and a buyer that has capital gains, instead of having to double the amount of investment in the building that they buy – because it's original use, i.e. nobody had moved in yet, no CO, 100% of their capital gains would be appropriately sheltered. They would not need to improve it because it hadn't been used for its original purpose. So that's called original use property, a little bit of a nuance there. And so there are people that are out there, merchant builders that are building stuff and looking to sell it into the marketplace to an OZ investor who would not have to take development risk, not have to take permit risk, not have to take construction risk, but they would still have to take lease up risk. That's much better. You don't have any other construction process to trip you up, which is tricky. And so those folks are, again, not stupid. And they're doing it for a reason. They're doing it so that, let's assume they built something for $15 million, $15 million. Well, they're going to want to make some money on that. And so they're likely to ask for a premium Why? Because the person that's investing is getting deferral reduction and the elimination after 10 years. And so if they build it for 15, are they going to ask 17, 18, 19? Sure, they're going to do that. And people are doing that. And the buyers aren't goofy. They get it. They're overpaying versus what it was built for, but they're not taking as much risk and they're getting the shelter appropriately. So, Yes, I think in those areas where you've got original use property, there's definitely a premium being paid. Whether that's a premium on a cap rate or a premium on there's no NOI and net operating income in place or a premium on build costs depends who you are and what the product type is and how much along the curve neighborhood is. But I think that those folks, the buyers that have capital gains, would be willing to pay up to whatever 10 to 15 percent because they're getting that benefit on the reduction. So you're not going to pay more than that, but you might pay up to that, depending on how excited you got about the prospect of the project.
0: Are there any creative ways that smaller investors could fly under the radar and achieve excellent yields without bidding against large funds for larger properties in these zones?
1: So yes, I think the answer is definitely yes. I think that a lot of the folks we're working with would consider themselves smaller developers. I don't consider them smaller developers, but they would consider themselves smaller developers. They're not public companies. They look for product in particular areas, they hunt for that, and they go and buy and build. And so those are the deals that we're seeing getting done. And so, yes, I think there are opportunities. That's just having fortitude to look into the market, find out where the zones are, which is pretty easy to do, and chase the sellers. Figure out what you want to build, figure out what you can do under zoning, and are the yields appropriate in order to attract capital if you don't have your own to build stuff? And then it's just making offers to people that own that stuff that you'll find the right person that's willing to sell for whatever reason at the price that you're willing to pay. And so, yes, I do think that there's a lot of opportunity for non-public companies to do this kind of thing on a one-off basis in particular neighborhoods. Those are kind of the deals that we're helping to get done, candidly.
0: So let's say I have a capital gain in Apple, as you said. I sell it. I put those gains in a fund that, we'll just make up a name, we'll say Maramucci runs it. What if Maramucci, who's running the fund, does something incorrectly or out of code? How does that affect me?
1: So if you're the investor, it can and likely will affect you. If the fund doesn't qualify as a fund, or if they don't invest quickly enough, so there's a 90% rule on how much money they need to invest within six months, if the thing that they invest in is inappropriate, or if they don't spend the right amount of money on substantial improvement if you're doing real estate instead of a business. And so the question is, what does the agreement, the operating agreement between you, the investor, and XYZ, the manager of the investment, say? Many of these documents protect the manager because they're the one putting them together and say the manager shall have no responsibility and the manager is not responsible for making sure that this complies with code. And if it gets fouled up, sorry, you get your money back maybe, or you're at total risk to lose your entire investment. So that's a, you really need to read and you need to have good counsel, making sure that you understand the risks you're getting into. There's a variety of ways that these deals get done. Some are just two or three friends getting together and creating a fund. That's totally fine. Others have essentially used the federal securities rules in order to raise capital, and they're doing it through either a Regulation D private placement with accredited investors. That program tends to take the tune of there's a private placement memorandum that outlines all the risks in the deal and provides some level of clarity on who's responsible for what and what the fees are. And it comes with a subscription agreement that lays out Kind of those various fees. And then the other end of the spectrum is a full blown public offering where there's offering documentation. So I haven't seen a full blown public offering on one of these deals yet, but it's coming. And I've seen a variety of private placements to 5, 10, 20 investors that are accredited investors under the securities codes. So that's definitely happening. But I've also seen a bunch of deals where they've relied on friends and family and not done a private placement. And so in those deals, Yes, if all things work out great, it's all good. But if it doesn't, and somebody feels cheated, what's going to happen? Well, there could be a lawsuit based on, and you're back to, what does the document say? What were they required to do? Was it mandatory that they had to comply? Or were they going to use their commercially reasonable efforts to try? Or were they going to endeavor to try? Well, those words mean something. And so, depending on who you're representing, the investor or the sponsor... The words will say different things, and so it behooves one to read and understand what that risk is.
0: Have you seen any Reg A offerings for these? I have
1: not worked on a Reg A offering, but I have seen a few. There's actually a group in North Philly that did a Reg A kind of crowdsourced funding to raise money for a project they were doing. So they were raising in increments of $25 maybe, could have been $10. And it was like crowdsourced online. So it can be done. It's a little bit tricky, but it can definitely be done. Yeah, their view was, hey, we're a 501c3. We want this to benefit the people in our community. If they can afford $10, $25, $10, $25, let them invest in their capital gains and see how it goes. So I think that that was their approach.
0: And just for anyone that doesn't know, reggae is kind of like a mini IPO. It allows you to, quote unquote, do a, just a smaller offering. What's it up to $50 I think that's the cap.
1: Yes, I think that's right.
0: And then, Brad, a follow-up. So I sold the Apple stock to invest in the fund. If the fund goes out of code, do I now owe immediate capital gains?
1: That's a little bit of it. It depends on what it is. But the risk is what you just identified. The risk is if the fund does not comply and they've got some time period to fix that. But if they don't comply and they don't do what they're supposed to do... It will trigger the tax that you would have otherwise had to pay on the money you invested. So, if you had a million dollars and you put it into a fund, you would have typically had to have paid, again, 24% of the federal government on that. So that's 240 grand. Mm-hmm. If you put the million dollars into the fund, the fund does what it's supposed to do. You don't have to pay that until 2026. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, i.e., the fund doesn't, and it gets caught, or it kind of self-reports that it didn't do what it was supposed to do, that triggers your, the investor, requirement to pay the tax. It's as if you didn't participate in the program in the first instance, and you need to pay. And so, again, some would say, well, you're otherwise required to pay anyway, so what the hell's the difference? Well, the difference is it's just out of sequence. And so you were thinking, I've got until 2026 to pay this, and now all of a sudden, it may be maybe 2025, 20, 24, 23, 22, 21, you got to pay it early. Now, that's like a so what. You were required to pay it anyway. It's just maybe when you don't have the money to pay it. So if you had a million dollars and you were counting on cash flow to get you money back in order to save 240 grand, and all of a sudden you got a tax bill that's 240 grand, and if you haven't gotten your money back from the fund, or the fund spent it and it's not doing what it's supposed to do and you get ripped off, then all of a sudden you could be in a bad place relative to owing tax and not getting your principal back. That would not be good.
0: So we kind of touched on the LIHTC deals earlier. Our country is in an affordable housing crisis, and a lot of housing advocates feel the tax reform was a missed opportunity for expanding access to affordable housing. If you had a magic wand, what legislation would you implement to help expand affordable housing?
1: We definitely have a crisis in affordable housing. There's no two ways around that, whether you want to put your head in the sand or not. The numbers speak for themselves. And so those numbers are getting worse, not better. And every state, to some degree, has this issue. Many states have a high degree of this issue, being housing that is unaffordable to people in order to live. And so if one is spending more than 60% of their income on housing that's deemed to be unaffordable. Why? Because then you can't afford medicine and food, which would also be kind of critical. And so every area, there's good data out there as to how critical it is. But every state, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, massive needs for affordable housing. Okay. And not a lot being built because LIHTC in its essence is good, but it's tricky. It's hard to get allocations of those credits. It's hard to get the compliance done. It costs a lot of money in legal and accounting, so it's tricky. And there are good people that do that all day, every day, but there's not enough of it being done. Okay, so enough of the soapbox. What would I do? I think that I wouldn't gut the OZ program, but what I would think about doing is providing added incentives for affordable housing. So what could that look like? Well, if one creates jobs with local zip codes, some level of additional incentive, whether that's the real estate tax abatement, which is another tricky thing, or some level of additional tax credits for job creation and for affordable housing might help incent that type of development. So whereas you're getting kind of 2026 deferral and the 15 and 10%, maybe you could tweak that for affordable housing so they get a little bit longer, 20, 30, and they get a little bit more, 20% and 15%. Who knows? That might incent behavior. Those deals tend to need gap financing. And so the ability to create some level of federal home loan bank that typically lends into these deals to give them additional capital to lend into these transactions at low rates, 1% ish, might be helpful. And some level of what Ohio did Ohio has, not necessarily for affordable housing, but Ohio for job creation has said if you create jobs in our opportunity zones, we will waive off on our state capital gains that are applicable when you sell. So there are like 38 states in the United States that have said, hey, we're gonna follow the federal program that says for opportunity zones, you sell after 10 years, you don't have to pay federal capital gains. We, these 38 states, we agree. If you build in our state and you sell, we too will wave off on our state capital gain portion. So in some states, it's not that much. Like it's a couple of percentage points in Pennsylvania. Okay. In New Jersey, it's 8.6%. In New York, it's 11.5%. On top of the 24%, you already get waived on the federal government. So that's a big benefit, depending on how big the project is. So again, providing some level of incentive on the sale, maybe also some incentive on the operating income. Now, that's not really going to help you on an affordable project because the operating income tends to be like zero during the term of the compliance period. But some incentive that way on additional dollars going to the project in order to support programming might be helpful.
0: You'd mention on other podcasts that your skill set allows you to have the capacity to help people. What drives you to volunteer on top of the demands of your work schedule?
1: I think that's just a matter of trite, but because I can. For me, I've got the capacity to help. And so I do, meaning I have some money so I can use my money. I have some experience in real estate and transactions and planning. And so the ability to utilize those skills to help others that may not have those skills do things that they may not otherwise be able to do is interesting to me. That's a little bit of special needs housing I've been involved with. I found that on the affordable side, we're talking about affordability. When you look at it, it's not just special needs adults, which I happen to have. My son is a special needs guy. So that's personal. But when you look at many kids not going to college and or graduating college, their initial wages are affordable wages, meaning the amount that they make puts them into the affordable housing category. Folks who are teachers, folks who work in retail and get paid like minimum wage, bus drivers, police, fire, most of those jobs, in particular, starting wages that you make in those jobs, incredibly important jobs, are not making enough money to afford housing beyond affordable housing rates. Let's repeat that. Police, fire, teachers, retail, bus drivers. Think about how many people that is, like a lot of people you come in contact with. They fall in the bucket of needing affordable housing, whether they want to admit that or not, because their wages don't allow them to earn enough to afford beyond that. And so Building the housing that's relevant to that is important. And so how one creates that product and what one does with one's free time is kind of a personal choice. But I just feel like we know people, the people we know can afford to put aside 10 bucks instead of going to Starbucks for a cup of coffee, which is fine. They can put that $10 to use in a charity. And so it's just motivating yourself and others to do that.
0: Can you tell us more about the 1721 housing development in Cherry Hill?
1: Sure. So that was kind of a little bit of what I was just alluding to. 1721 was a combination of a moment in time, but it's what could one do to create a replicatable housing model that could be used over and over again in order to provide housing for special needs adults over 21 years of age? Because one... If they're working, they tend to make minimum wage or less. And so by definition, they're not going to be able to make a lot of money, and therefore they're not going to be able to afford housing when their parents or their guardians are not around. So what do we do? There's not enough affordable housing in and of itself in the United States. Of that group, there is precious little to no affordable housing for special needs adults, period. And so that's not good. And so I got a little fired up about that and talked to some folks. I was sat on the board of the Jewish Federation of Southern New Jersey, and the CEO, who's awesome, Jen Weiss, was very interested in that topic. So how do you provide programming for adults over 21, but also how do you provide housing? And can we combine the two? So there's a lot of people that build housing and do it well, but they don't really do programming. There's a lot of people that do programming that aren't real estate people, and they're not interested in being real estate people. But over time, the people like their organization, and they know that their kids, are, as they're getting older, are going to need housing, and so they donate housing here, or there, throughout neighborhoods. And those people end up with, in some instances, hundreds of houses that they all of a sudden have to deal with, a roof and the boiler and the toilets. That's not their mission. Their mission is to provide services to people. So how do you intermediate the two? Meaning, how do you create a model that brings in the professionals to design, build, and operate real estate? Because that's what they do. And how do you bring in the professionals to provide services, oversight and support services, job skills, day programming, after-school training, programs for those in need? How do you intermediate those two? And so 1721 became that attempt at providing housing. And so we worked with the township who had been opposed to affordable housing for 35 years and fighting a battle on that front. So that got resolved. We worked with a development group because the federation realized through a variety of conversations that their skill set is not in designing, building, and operating real estate. And so why wouldn't we bring in a third party on an RFP basis to do that? Let's bring in professionals that do that all day every day to do that. And so we had an RFP process, we brought in six very good developers any of which would have been great. Penrose Properties is a really excellent developer who has like property in like 16 states throughout the United States and 20,000 units was selected. So they were responsible for design, build and operating the real estate using Lytech. The federation owned the land. And was paid ground rent by the developer. And the project is a two-phase project, 80 units, eight zero in each phase, 60 senior units, 20 special needs units. So 80 units, first floor is special needs units. They're quads, four bedrooms, four separate bathrooms, shared common area with oversight if the individuals need it. So there's an office in each of those quads where somebody can work an eight-hour shift. So it's 8, 16, 24 for 24-hour oversight if necessary. So there's uh, 80 units, 60 senior, 20 special needs in phase one. Same thing in phase two, which is, again, 80 units, 60 senior, 20 special needs, 100% affordable. And so the first phase is done. The building is built, the CO is in hand, and the federation is working through final details on who is going to be living there. So it's a public program, and so it's open to the community. And therefore, Penn Rose, through its 501c3, was responsible for intake. So they took applications for the 80 units, 60 senior, 20 special needs, and they got hundreds of applications, as the numbers don't lie. There's a massive need for this stuff. And so they're leasing the units now, and I think people will move into phase one in February, March of 2020, which is exciting. And we're building phase two, which is, again, the second piece of that. And that will deliver probably next December, January. And so that will be 160 units in Cherry Hill and good stuff. And so a bunch of us are working on our next project. And my goal is to kind of do one of these every year, every other year until we're not around anymore. Because whatever we build is going to be tip of the iceberg, but it's Mm -hmm. better than doing nothing.
0: And this project had some unique financing, right? A lot of people chipped in? No,
1: financed. So LIHTC, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, provided $0.70 cents on a dollar. The quid pro quo, that's a bad phrase, I guess, These <laughs> is if you're willing to lease housing for affordable purposes, instead of charging like $2,000 a month, there's a numeric calculation. Instead of $2,000 a month, which would be market rate, You charge $600 a month, which is affordable, That deemed to be affordable. So $600 versus $2,000 is the big difference in income. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to do that, the federal government says we will allocate to the state, the states allocate to projects, credits, piece of paper that enables the developer to sell that piece of paper for, call it, $0.90 on the dollar. And when they sell that paper for $0.90 on the dollar, the buyer gets to use it to offset its income tax. Good for them. The developer gets paid cash for that piece of paper and is able to use that cash as equity in the project. And so 70 cents on the dollar, they're able to use through the LIHTC tax credit sales. Then they need to come up with the 30%. And so they have a federal home loan, bank loan. They have a conventional construction loan And then the Federation also raised some money on its own to help plug some of the gap that I was talking about. So they raised a couple million dollars relative to providing for furniture and some programming and some social services that will be at the site. And so each of the buildings, there's two buildings. The first building is up, and you can see it, is $17, 18000000 million, and the second building is the same price. So it's a lot of intricate moving pieces that have been woven together to enable 80 people, seniors and special needs adults to live together in a place and create a community within a community. So it's literally embedded in Hill, which is like 70,000 people. Mm-hmm. And it's two seconds from busing and it's two seconds from shopping and it's got bus lines that go right by it where people can use public transportation. So a bunch of good attributes.
0: So you see 1721, the model as a template that could easily be repeated across the country?
1: Easily is a stretch, but I see it as a solution, not the solution. So it's no one size fits all. You need to have the right size property in order to build 80 units. So you really need like five acres to do that. If you didn't have that, you'd have to opt for a single house. And so there's not one size fits all. There's not one solution. But this is a solution that can be replicated if you've got the fortitude to fight through the regulations and deal with kind of reimbursements. And so you have the development piece, and then you have the operations piece, and then you've got a programming piece. All of a sudden, you're going to have 80 residents there. What do you do? You know, just like plop them in front of the TV with TV dinners, if they even make TV dinners anymore, you got to have programming. What are they doing from seven in the morning till nine o'clock? Are they preparing food? Are they working together on a project? And then they have a day program, call it 10 to three, where they're either working or volunteering or going to a specific program. And then they're back home like kids from school at uh, three o'clock, four o'clock. So what are you doing until dinner? Not just sitting around doing nothing, but what are you doing? Is there a program? Is there a job skill? Is there a learning dinner after dinner, and then lather repeat. That's not one time a month. That's every freaking day for the rest of somebody's life. And so you think about that, it's a lot of work. It's not for the faint of heart, but there's a lot of people that need that service. So do I think it's replicatable? I know it is. And it's just a question of finding townships that are interested in it and finding kind of people like Penrose, who are interested in it, and or folks like Michaels, folks like Ingerman, others that are in the affordable housing arena to build it and operate it, and folks like the Federation to provide the programming and oversight. So there's plenty of good nonprofits in the area, let alone nationally. Bancroft comes to mind, Devereaux comes to mind, who are service providers on a grand scale. Could they be intersected with kind of a project like this? Yes, absolutely, they could.
0: So I imagine you won't stop working when it comes to retirement. Uh, Where do you see yourself focusing your skills and time in your later years?
1: I don't know, something like this. So I think that that project was exasperating, but also inspiring in that it's neat to see it come to fruition. That was a dream that we put on a piece of paper on a napkin and kind of worked hard with a bunch of people, team effort. And so everything wasn't perfect, but it was good and not being distracted by the perfect, I think it was important. And so something like that where it's complicated and interesting and there's finance involved, there's real estate involved, there's services involved. I could definitely see continuing to play in that arena because there's such a massive need, whether it's for my son or for folks that he's friendly with or for seniors or for fill in the blank homeless drug addicted, which, again, are not going in this facility, but you could see that need exists. Nobody wants to deal with that until you have to deal with it. So unfortunately, with the opioid epidemic, before that was nobody knew anybody. Now you talk to 20 people and within the 20 people, somebody knows somebody that unfortunately has had an issue there. Where do those folks go? You don't want them living next to you, but where do they go? And so they need a place that is safe, that they can get better, and that people can provide the service for them. Fill in the blank, that's veterans, that's homeless, that's uh, mental instability. So all of those populations need some level of help. And whether you want to call it a handout or whether you want to call it a societal problem, how one deals with that economically is a question, but not dealing with it isn't an answer. And so housing is a big part of that solution. A place to go, a shelter, and food are all critically important issues. So I'll keep putting around there and thinking about it and trying to do something.
0: Brad, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. How can our listeners get in touch with you?
1: Look, a pleasure's mine. As you can see, just wind me up. I'm happy to talk about stuff. <laughs> I'm happy to talk, but the easiest way to find me is by email. So my work email, B-A-Molotsky, M-O-L-O-T-S-K-Y, at Duane DuaneMorris.com, D-U-A-N-E-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. So if you ever need anything, just email, and I'll see it, and I'll
0: respond. Thanks, Brad. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.